Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you that we could be present in this place. God, that early on I, I felt like a, a part of our persona and... And so, God, I know that in this building, one that's held gatherings of people of faith for decades and coming up on a century, God, we thank you that we could continue that legacy here in downtown Phoenix. And more than anything, God, I pray that you would continue to build your light now today. So, God, we thank you, we praise you, and we thank you that the 49ers get blown out. In Jesus' name. And Kevin said... I mean, it, the funny thing is, like, there was somebody here with a 49ers jersey, but it was one of the black ones, so it's like, but if you wear a Chiefs jersey, you're, like, standing out like a highlighter right here. So, anyway, uh, we are in a series, now transitioning, we've been in a series, and by in a series one week, uh, we're spending the next eight weeks going through uh, Matthew 5, chapter, the entirety of chapter 5 through the entirety of Matthew chapter 7. And for those who know Christian faith or know um, the Bible, you know that that is a very famous passage called the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks going through, and what's, what's important about this is that this isn't just a mess, message, and it's really a message of counterculturalism to the Jewish people of what it looks like to serve God. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament, there's a covenant made with a man by the name of Abraham that all of his lineage would live in the awareness of being a child of God and the blessing of being a child of God. Now, the New Testament is all about how a new covenant is given in which the Old Covenant is absolved of, of, by the blood. All of us have a place in partaking in approximate relationship with the God of, of all. Now, here's where this gets interesting, is if you research in Matthew, Matthew, the very first kind of beginning, um, is all Jesus is doing miracles, and he's doing a bunch of cool stuff, but he's not really speaking a lot. And so actually, where we pick up is Jesus is giving really his first, um, I guess you could say, teaching of what his direction of his yoke. What you have to understand is this. Matthew, the name of the book, right? If I were, we're going to be actually focused today on Matthew 5, 7 through verse 12. But Matthew is actually one of Jesus' disciples who writes this book. Why is that important? Because as a disciple, he's had a front row access to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, what you may not know about this book is it is written over 30 years after his death. Now, what's also fascinating is this, and I believe this is an argument that many people kind of bring up today in the Christian faith. When you get down into the, the, the linguistics or the language of Scripture, right, we know that Jesus speaks Aramaic, okay? We know that what we're going to be doing and what we did last week is breaking down Greek, and how many of us know what language we speak? We speak English, So what am I getting at? How are we taking Aramaic to Greek to English and thinking that we may be missing context or meaning? And that's a great question. But that's actually why Matthew wrote this book. Because Matthew was raised Aramaic, he was raised a Hebrew, but what he's seeing is that 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 if the message of Jesus is to reach all people, which in that day is Greek. 
Greek also is widespread in terms of the amount of people who were scribes and, and recorders of the actual language. So, and what's interesting is you have Matthew who not only grew up Aramaic, grew up watching Jesus, but also is somebody that 30 years later as he's writing this gospel out is literally reading scribes of Aramaic, taking them over to Greek. This is an extremely accurate gospel as it pertains to... Now, the reason why it's accurate is this, and this is a, an overlooked meaning of the book of Matthew. Matthew is living in a day and time where Jewish, the, the traditional Jewish upbringing, is battling this idea that you could just have faith in God and that's enough. You could just have faith and you're good. He just, and, and Matthew essentially writes his gospel as a defense of, of faith in Jesus, but not absolution of what you have to understand about this particular passage. is the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is writing to Jewish people who are thinking faith in Jesus is not enough, and essentially saying, you're kind of right, it's not. Fulfill the law, he redirected and raised the bar of what the law was supposed to be. How do we know this? If you read this sermon, this is some of the famous passages in which, great example, he says, if you even look at somebody in lust, you've committed adultery, breaking Mosaic law. If you even are angry toward a brother and wish uh, something bad on them, you've broken the law of murder. There's so many different layers and elements to Jesus' teaching. Here we find the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. We find the build your house on the rock and not the sand. We find a lot of this inside of this teaching, but more than anything inside this teaching is it is an invitation to practice. And what do I mean by that? Well, last week we talked about, if I were to ask you, give me 10 things that make a life blessed. Many of us, you know, go to church every week, tithe 700%. It's not even possible, but it's fine. It's a joke. Uh, be a Green Bay Packers fan. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm making up my own list now. Uh, But what am I getting at, right? The blessing in our mind. Okay, God, I'm going to write a list of 10 things that make me blessed versus the 10 things that Jesus comes up with that make us blessed. Study today and what we're seeing is his, the the focus of today is we're looking at the, the blessing that he pronounced on the person who's merciful, who's pure in heart, who's a peacemaker, who's persecuted, the one who is insulted and spoken evil against. These are the ones where he's like, hey man, that's, that's the blessed one right there. Now, how many of you guys know, if somebody's like, hey, you know, if you're going to be persecuted, you're going to live blessed. How many of us would be like, "Eh, I would beg to differ. If somebody's going to talk evil and slanderously about that one either. What am I getting at? There is, Matthew writes this gospel to the Jewish people. And what he's saying is this. There's going to require more effort. Okay, you don't earn it, but you have to put in effort to know it. But also, these efforts are not going to be directed in the ways that you think. These efforts are going to be redirected into a righteousness that is different than anything you could comprehend. Coming a new creation. And as sad as it is today, that is what we've tried to tell people. Is you can pick Jesus in the hope that you can become a little bit better as a person. Not necessarily that when you choose Jesus, you sign up to saying, God, make me a new person. There is an old and there is a new. Once again, we know that this invitation is to practice. Matthew 7.24 and Matthew 5.19 reference in the Sermon on the Mount that, these, that this practice would actually bring about a greatness in the kingdom of heaven. 
It also says that the one who practices these words will be like a house built on the sand. So what am I saying? The Beatitudes, the the convoluted definitions, terms, and understanding of it is a little bit of like us sitting here and be like, okay, that's a really good, like, God, I'd love to do that one day. Rather, these dispositions, and as we do, there's a blessing attached. We talked about last week how the Greek is synonymous and interchangeable happiness and blessing. What am I getting at? If I were to ask you, what does a blessed life look like? Most of us in our culture and society would come up with some, as sad as it is to say, consumeristic or superficial definition of blessing. But if I looked at you and said, God wants to make you happy, there's an inner posture of happiness that is insinuated by the term. So with that, last week what we did is we talked about... Uh, we talked about the first, the beginning parts. And we have kind of 10 Beatitudes last week. We went through four. Today we're going through uh, four and a half because I'm combining uh, the last two on persecution into one. And how we went into these is this. We went into these by essentially taking the Greek, breaking down exactly what was mid-audience is, and then rewriting it in our English translation that maybe would make more sense as to why Jesus is actually giving a broad definition and not a narrow revelation of what blessed life is. Because many of us, when we read this, we're like, okay, blessed are the merciful. Well, I don't check that box. Blessed are the pure in heart. Don't check that box. Blessed are those who are stand up under persecution. Definitely don't check that box. It's easy to be like, well, I don't check any of these, so God, maybe one day, you know. But what we don't realize is that underneath this, there is a different language that he's speaking, an invitation he's inviting all of us to in his very first sermon. So with that, let's read the beginning, Matthew 5, 7 through verse 12, once again. It says this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they have persecuted the prophets who have came before you. What am I getting at? Last week we started, and I'll give you this title. We start. That's what we've been talking about. The beatitude beginning of Jesus' ministry that is actually an invitation to redirected effort. Why? Because as Matthew writes this letter or gospel as we call it today, but letter to the church of mostly Jewish upbringing, he's saying your efforts of the Old Testament are not going to bring about the efforts God has for you in the New Testament. And the new efforts are what's for. They're going to challenge you. Now, this year, uh, how many of us, when we turn over a new leaf into the new year, we have New Year's resolutions, right? Anybody? No? Just me? Okay. Well, I remember a new year uh, coming around. I was looking and I was like, okay, what's something I want to challenge myself with? Now, here's the thing. I've always had a love-hate relationship with running. I think all of us can identify that. It's like when you pass somebody jogging down the road and you look at them, you're just like, why? Like, Why? I know that Alan, I was making fun of him, but he has a 7 a.m. run club on Saturdays that I'll never go to. Uh, 
But here's the deal. I always had a love-hate relationship with running, meaning I was fast in middle school. And what's funny is this. Uh, my family's lineage is like runners. My mom held a two-mile record for years at her high school. My brother, like, was top two or three records or uh, uh, times all time in high school for a bunch of races. But here's the realization about me that you have to understand. The only reason I ran track, I didn't run track in high school. Why? Because everybody took sports way too serious in high school. I was just there to have a good time. Anybody? Can I get an amen? But for me personally, when I ran track in middle school, you want to know why? It was the first sport that was co-ed. Some of you guys in elementary school, when you go to recess, you didn't play with girls, right? None of that. But all of a sudden, things start changing in middle school. Things start changing, and all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, so track and cross country, you can practice and hang out with the girls all the time. And I'm sitting there to myself like, that actually sounds like a decent idea. And, and what's funny is, is it's like all middle school boys track. <laughs> right. So, so I'm one of those guys where I'm like, you know what, I think I might run track. Like, I might run track. Then I found out like, oh, you have to practice? Who wants to practice running? It's like, just run. That's it. I don't need to practice that. I'm just going to run, and then I'm going to stop running, drink water, and hope I don't have to do it again, and I can keep talking to girls. So anyway, middle school, that was, I, I ran all throughout middle school. It was great. And here's the thing. When I got to high school, quit, because it's just everybody believes that their kid is the next Michael Jordan, Peyton Manning, you name it. It's like, it's like a parent's right to tell their kid they are going to be the best athlete on the face of the planet. But for me, I realized very early on, nah, track is just not going to be my thing. And here's the deal. We know that we kind of, I, I like to work out, so you, you should do some cardio. But here's the thing. Running is not that cardio for me. What was that was boxing. And what I mean by that is that was the only thing. And I didn't feel like, gosh, this is terrible. But I enjoyed it. So this year, I was actually talking with my wife about thinking about doing it again because I just so enjoyed my time doing it. But the, the reason I tell you this is I picked up boxing years ago. I was maybe five or six years ago, I started doing it. And I kind of quickly got sucked into where I was doing two to three uh, kind of trainings a week. I loved the speed bag, loved the heavy bag, loved working on the combos with my coach, all that. Got into sparring. And what I realized about boxing is this. I'm a drummer as well, is if you're good with your left hand, that you're going to be, you should be fine. Meaning if I were to box a bunch of beginners, right, if my left hand is better than their left hand, most people when they get in a fight, which nobody in here should have ever been in a fight ever in their entire life, but if you were to get in a fight, what are you trying to do? You're trying to take off somebody's head. Why? Because that's all I'm trying to do. But in boxing, if somebody tries to swing for my head, my left arm, if I'm right-handed, is tipping a younger person to where they can't get into my face or my body. So what did I do? I learned how to do a left hand, and then from there, I started sparring, and from there, I was sparring a lot of beginners, and what I realized is I practiced harder than, than them, and I enjoyed doing cardio because it meant I could go longer, so I started doing more cardio, and then really for about a year and a half, I was boxing pretty regularly against beginners and really having a lot of fun because they didn't know what they were doing. The only problem is this. There were two guys at my gym who knew what they were doing, and he was my weight. We used to wear 16-ounce gloves and headgear, and I watched a guy break a dude's jaw with, with a pound of padding. What does that mean? I'm not going to fight against you. <laughs> That's what that means. You break a dude's jaw with a pound of padding on your hand, I, I would rather, I'm okay without that. There was another person, though, 15 years old. There's a 15-year-old guy in the class who his grandfather was actually my coach. 
And his dad was a boxer as well. He's a th- and he was a three-time gold glove winner. Now, for me, 15 years old, and this kid's like 150 pounds, I at that time was probably 185, 190 pounds. I was in pretty good shape, and I'd been boxing two to three times a week for the last year and a half. So I look at a 15-year-old that's 35 pounds less than me, and I, I'm like, I, I should be fine. I wasn't fine. What do I mean by this? I remember he came up to me, the, my coach said, hey, I think you can go against him. Let's see where you're at on your skill level. And so what happens is in our sparring, we would do three five-minute rounds. So I get in the ring, and the first two rounds I'm doing fine because he's a little shorter than me, a little bit less stature, and so I would throw my jab and just kind of keep him away from me. So if he tried to move in, my jab, I, was, I just worked a ton on my left hand, kind of keep him away, keep him away, and I feel like I'm doing pretty good for myself here. Third round, I remember in between the rounds, second and third, they're like, hey, man, you need to kick it up a notch, and they're not talking to me. So they, they kind of tell him to kick it up. Well, he comes out, and we start. It's definitely the tempo's up a little bit more. You know, we're going back and forth. But, and I liked this kid, and even he, he's, he was a great kid, but I'll never forget this. I'm throwing my jab out, and he come in. I throw, my, I throw a jab. He wasn't there, and it felt like somebody took a sledgehammer to my ribcage. Now, a 15-year-old kid, I, I'll never forget this because I played sports my whole life. I'd have, I'd been like almost knocked cold in football, like all this stuff. I never in my life have been hit as hard as a 15-year-old boy hit me in the ribs. And it was so bad. It's funny because like if you know combat sports, which I don't know a ton of, but if you, if you follow them, you know like, oh, it's a body. I got hit in the body and I was like... <laughs> it's like a 15-year-old too, so I'm like trying to muster it up. I'm like... <laughs> He like come in, I'm just like, <laughs> just like, do not come near me again or I will bite you. <laughs> I know why Mike Tyson did that now. I'm like, I'm like looking at this kid and I'm like, dude, I told we were friends. Like my man just, I, and it's, I have never in my life been hit as hard as a 15 year old boy hit me that day in boxing which also accelerated my uh, moving from boxing into golf. <laughs> which is now my life. This, I had a basic enough knowledge and basic enough skill to where I could defend myself, stand my ground, and ultimately fight off, for the most part, most people I faced. But then I met one person who knew where my weak spot was and exposed it instantly. I tell you this because this is what I think Matthew's doing with the Beatitudes. I believe he is exposing weak areas of Jewish culture in which the enemy is attacking the people that do not have these characteristics and dispositions, and he is crippling them in their walk with God. Or should I say it like this? I'll I'll say it like this. A lot of the times what I see as a pastor in the church is this. I have a strong biblical in what I should and shouldn't do. But I'm going to tell you, if you do not develop the Christian character defense system of knowing the enemy is going to attack you in specific ways, you're going to get hit like a sledgehammer in your soul. And when you get hit in those ways, I've been in the church long enough. I can count well over a dozen friends with divorces. I've got suicide notes that have been addressed to me. 
I have seen those who look like they are the most called, the most chosen, that they should run the farthest, be on the biggest stages and not make it. Why? Because they had the basics of I know how to defend myself, I know how to... But the deep levels of defense that we must build into our souls, they did not... Is that really what it comes down to is this, is we can get by right now until you can't anymore. That's the sad thing about this, is that you really can't get by with surface-level commitment, surface-level prioritization, surface-level transformation and development. You can. Why? Because most people won't even put in the time to that. But then what happens is, is the enemy waits for a more opportune time. You think the enemy's going to attack you when you're strong? What it says when Jesus passed the test in the wilderness. That the enemy departed for a more opportune time. You want my own theological take on that? I actually believe the enemy revisited him. How do I know that? It's because literally, what is the closest we see to Jesus looking and saying, God, I don't know if I can do this when I'm sweating blood. See, before we don't have Jesus saying throughout his gospels, oh, I don't know if I can do this, God. I don't know if I can follow you. I don't know. But what we do see is there is a moment of weakness in which he is crying out to God saying, take this cup from me. Do you think the enemy was attacking him then? Absolutely. What am I getting at? Is that the enemy is not attacking you where you're strong. He's going to wait till you're weak, till you're vulnerable, till you have not fortified your defenses enough to stand up against him. The Beatitudes are written to a people who have been getting beat up generation after generation after generation, have never walked in the fullness of God, have never experienced the proximity of God, have never known the nearness of God. All they've seen is failure after failure, immorality after immorality, adultery after adultery. And in this particular essence, what we see in Scripture is this. We know that they were enslaved to the Egyptians. We know that they were exiled to the Babylonians. When this is written, you know what's going on? Chosen people occupied by a foreign idolatrous government. You know why? Sin and wickedness. What am I saying? The Beatitudes is God saying, listen, I don't want you to live in bondage. I don't want you to live this way. I don't want you to experience the pain of getting hit in an area that you didn't realize you could be hit hard in. We need to give you a new effort to put in to defend yourself. That is what we're focused on today. So the attitude specifically breaking down phrasing in the Greek and rewriting it in the language of kind of English that we use in a way that we understand what is being spoken. So many of us, we can read these statements and we're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. Well, that's great. That's where I want you to be because as we redefine these words and we rewrite them out, the goal is for all of us to be like, dang, that actually does make sense now. And that hits a little closer to home. So with that, the first one up is this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Greek word for merciful, elemon. And it means actively compassionate, one who dispenses mercy. Actively compassionate, dispensing mercy. So what does that mean? Blessed is a merciful person, right? Merciful is actively compassionate. So if I were to look at you and say, for the most part, I think a lot of us, we could sit here and be like, yeah, I'm a decently merciful person. Seek out ways to give compassion to others. All of a sudden you're like, wait, ah, that one kind of is going in a different direction. 
Here's another interesting thing about compassion specifically. This is littered in Jesus' ministry. Not only his physical life, but also the wording he uses in parables. The two most famous parables, prodigal son, last. You know what's interesting about both those stories? The defining characteristic in each one is compassion. Literally, Jesus' exact words reference it. You see it in Luke uh, you see it in Luke 10.33, and you see it in Luke 15.10. The prodigal son, the one who goes to his father, seeks his inheritance, takes it, and then squanders it. Then a famine hits the land, and he's starving, and he says, I'll go back to my dad's house, and at least I'll be a hired servant. It says, when his father saw him, a compassion motivated an activity of running towards. But here's the other one. The Good Samaritan It says that a man was beaten up and left for dead on the side of a road, and a Levite, a holy one, saw him, crossed the other side, and passed by. It also says that a priest saw him, crossed the other side, and passed by. What's the difference between the Levite, the priest, and the Good Samaritan? It says that the Good Samaritan saw him and had sprinkles compassion in his message everywhere. Why? Because to be somebody who's actively compassionate is somebody who is merciful. And who is somebody who is merciful? Somebody who will be blessed and be shown mercy too. So, if I were to give you my meaning, blessed will be those who are actively compassionate, dispensing it on others freely and graciously. For from this posture, they will walk in the mercy they extend to others. In my opinion of Jesus' inferred meaning... Happy will be the one who actively dispenses mercy on others, for they shall actively know my compassion towards them. Man, for a lot of us, I challenge you to expend mercy on other people might actually reveal the mercy that has been given to you. You know, the most bitter, cynical, and jaded people are typically not just... You start unlocking the cells that you've placed other people in, you might find you've unlocked your own prison cell at the same time. Let's go to the second one. It says this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, if I were to stand up here and say, all right, guys, how many of us want to see God today? I think all of us would, you know, rhetorically probably be like, yeah. But if I were to say to you, how many of us want to take up the character development? It's a whole nother question. Because pure in heart has a deeper meaning than you think. The Greek words for pure in heart and see God. Pure is katharos, and it means cleansed of impurity, purified as which fire removes dos, free from corrupted desires, sin or guilt, blameless, and one who is found innocent. Heart is cardia, and it means the center or seat pumps blood. The soul, the mind, and the character of a person, the center of your physical and spiritual being. See means optonomai, and it means to look upon, to behold, to allow oneself to be seen, and to appear. You know what my meaning is of blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God? My meaning is blessed will be those whose mind, soul, and will and character is cleansed and free from corrupted desires and sin, for they will look upon God and behold Him fully. Jesus' inferred meaning 
Happy will be the one whose center of their physical and spiritual existence has been purified and cleansed back to a place of innocence and blamelessness. From this place, I will allow myself to fully appear and be seen by them. The next one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Greek for peacemaker and son of God. Peacemaker. Irenoponthic. Peaceful in character and intent. It's actually root word is the word that you use to describe a pacifier to a baby. I have a two-month-old. A pacifier is what soothes, is what gives peace. What am I saying to you today? I think for a lot of us, we don't realize that God, peaceful, a peacemaker, is not just one who says, hey, I want to bring peace to people. It's somebody whose character and intent towards is peace. Meaning, however, when you're in the midst of something that's a little bit stressful, a little bit sparks are flying, people can literally describe you as somebody who has an intent of peace, no matter what they're seeing what they're saying, or what they're going through. The Son of God is weos, and it means an offspring, a descendant of those who revere God as their father, those who are born again, those whom God esteems as his own, and whom, if I were to give you my meaning based off of these definitions, for blessed are the the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, I would say this, blessed will be those who are lovingly peaceful, for they will be known as a daily with the love, protection, and benefit of being a child of God. You know, Jesus' meaning, if I were to give it to you, happy will be the one who is peaceful of character and intent towards my creation. For by living this way, they will be recognized as a part of my family. The last one, this is my closing thought. A two-for-one closing, as you will. When we look at, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. What we're going to break down in closing, like I said, is the Greek for persecuted and insulted, as well as the kingdom of heaven. Now, what I find is interesting is in kind of uh, pursuits or, or lanes in which they're moving. Now, What's interesting is this. Two of the Beatitudes say something similar. 20% of them almost have the same wording. Why is that important? Because for a lot of us in faith, the last thing we want to partake in is persecution. The last thing we want to go through is difficulty. The last thing... But that is the invitation to a blessed life, is to develop a faith that has the strength to withstand. A faith that knows how to persevere. A faith that has scars that it can talk about and that has seen the other side. So today, let's break these down. It says this, once again, the Greek for persecuted and insulted by evil words as well as the Greek for uh, the kingdom of heaven. Make to run or to flee, to put to flight, to drive away in any way, or or to, to drive away, to harass, to trouble, to be mistreated or to be hostile towards. To do evil against is panaras, means pressed and harassed by those of bad nature and condition, wicked and evil. The kingdom of heaven is basilaya, meaning royal power, king. So if I were to put all of these together, 
And I was, when we're talking about persecution, to break it down for you from my meaning, I would say this. Blessed will be those who stay faithful under the cost of harassment, trouble, mistreatment, or hostility by those who are of bad nature, wicked, or evil. For they will be given royal treatment above all the territory of God's creation as they have been found worthy to rule alongside. I'm going to read that one again because I want to reframe some ideas of difficulty, reframe this idea of persecution, reframe this idea of I don't want to go through anything difficult. I don't want to test my faith at all. I don't want to take any shots in the ribs. We're all going to go through it. And in all honesty, the church is... is uh, constant, incessant need to talk about how we can name it and claim it and health and wealth is our right. I'm not a lot of stories of people who had to put a lot of strength to their faith, a lot of perseverance to, to paying the cost. And people who trusted God, not over the course of a couple months, but years, decades, and borderline lifetimes in hopes that in that place that they would know Him deeper. And that is the invitation today. So with that, I'm going to read this one more time. Blessed will be those who... ...or hostility by those who are of bad nature, wicked, or evil. For they will be given royal treatment above all the territory of God's creation as they have been found worthy to rule alongside. My last Jesus' underlying meaning beatitude is this. Happiness will find the one who stays steadfast in the midst of mistreatment, trouble, wickedness, and evilness of this world. That one, The devil does this for he knows that you were created to rule and have dominion with me. And he who stays faithful will walk and will see that reality. Would you stand to your feet with me? We're going to close with one final song, but before we do, I want to read these Beatitudes over you uh, with kind of Jesus' intended purpose. And I don't know which one spoke to you most directly, or maybe some of them didn't at all. That's fine. I'm just happy you were here. But what I am saying is I, I want to pray them over you as, as a now a new marking point of maturity a new, okay, this is the direction I need to go. This is the characteristics I need to develop. Because once again, we know that those who practice these things will be built on the rock and not the sand. That those who practice these things will see the kingdom of God. It's literally said in this. So I challenge you today. What is your relationship to these Beatitudes? And if it's one of disassociation and distance, you've missed the meaning. This is the new redirect agenda of Jesus' ministry. And this is what he calls all people to. So with that, would you receive these? Happy will be the one who actively dispenses mercy on others. For they shall actively know my compassion towards them. Happy will be the one whose center of their physical and spiritual existence has been purified in blamelessness. For from this place, I will allow myself to fully appear and be seen by them. Happy will be the one who is peaceful of character and intent towards my creation. For by living this way, they will be recognized as part of my family. 
happiness will find the one who stays steadfast in the midst of mistreatment that wants to rob you of intimacy with me. The devil does this for he knows that you were created to rule and have dominion with me. But he who stays faithful, he will walk and he will see. With one final song this afternoon, that we would be a people who recognize the symbolism and the importance of not just reading the word, not just gathering greater knowledge, but being somebody who is transformed by what has been given to us. God, we don't create distance or disassociation from these passages. Rather, we seek and know that you are giving a new definition to living in you. And so today, we're not just challenged to know and remember, we're challenged to live.